out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest this time. And on this occasion, it's going to be Blue Boy. Yes, the famous Sarah Record Band, who were around in the 80s and 90s because I recently spoke to the songwriter-guitarist. It is the one and only Paul Stewart to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Plus, the other bit of exciting news there, John Peel's session that was recorded on the 3rd of December 1994 has just been released by a relatively new uh, record label. Um, This is Precious Recordings of London and they've been putting out various other... Um, John Peel sessions from the likes of the Jasmine Minx and also the BM, BMS Bandits. I might have got that wrong, but I'm not going to do that again. Um, so this is the interview with Paul, or casual chat really. But um, so look, after several minutes, which gets edited out, that's just us getting to know each other, we got down to that exciting subject that was, yes, the, re- the John Peel session being released. Paul, tell us everything now. Yeah, weird actually, because um, I I didn't really know that this guy that contacted us, Nick Nick Godfrey, Nicholas yeah. Godfrey, who started Precious Recordings, and he's done uh, a, a few already. He's done, I think we're number five. Um, he's done BMX Bandits and Jasmine Minx, and he contacted me through Matt and Claire. At, Sarah, the label, and said that uh, you know he'd, he'd like to talk about um, the Peel session and releasing that as a as part of his his uh, sort of portfolio. Yeah. So yeah, I was delighted. Uh, we've actually got yeah, we the tapes exist somewhere. I don't know who owns the masters, but it, it does exist as digital files. So um, those four recordings. Um, I mean, that's that's this is the. I guess you could say this is the, the first record of new recordings for the band for 20 plus odd years because yes. uh, there's been reissues and stuff and there's been some live stuff uh, a colorful storm did the first um well i did the three albums and cherry red did some stuff but this is this is things people haven't heard before that's what i'm trying to say um so it's three songs which people will know but there's a fourth song called uh good news week which has never been released or heard which we did as a sort of a sort of a sort of melancholic cello kind of lament with some great cello playing from Gemma and and, and singing so it shows the sort of um two sides of the band really there's a sort of rougher side the harder side with the, the sort of two other songs and then the other two are sort of ballads yes that's i mean it's 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 kind of great to get it and it's brilliant that somebody is going to don't uh, dedicate so much of their life to such an amazing project because yes you i i don't even remember or because i did an interview with him and he, he sort of told me what he was doing and it's like my god you must have so much enthusiasm for such a niche market but you know it's good that you're doing yeah, it yeah and these in these times of like uh, really stupid sort of long delays with productivity and deliveries and it's been a bit nightmare for him this was supposed to be out gosh months ago i think it's now going to be september so that's uh, a month or so away but it's just been delay after delay for him and yeah as you say it's a, a real sort of uh, labor of love he's put his heart and soul into it and uh 
and um, it's all self-financed, I think. So, absolutely. I mean, there was another guy who's in <clears throat> Preston. I think he does Ian optic nerve records. He's been getting all these very obscure albums, and he and he said that. Uh, that delay for vinyl you know it's just kept creeping up and up so it's kind of messed his mm. whole schedule out mm. so it's something like yeah. six months you know if not you know mostly people were hoping to get things out this year and it's like oh, it'll be next year now so um but obviously you must have felt really chuffed on many levels that you were on the famous sarah record label really uh yeah totally i mean it's uh it was a real it was a real privilege to to be on that label um we weren't one of the earliest bands, obviously. We our first single was Catalog Fifty Five, I think, and um, we recorded a. Prior, prior to that, we were in a band called Feverview, which was a Reading-based band. We did some London gigs, but um, we were, yeah, it was just a fun band, a pop band, really. But Keith and I sort of splintered away from that. And we wanted to be a little bit more serious, and we were listening to things like Sarah Factory, Four AD Creation, and. Um, we were starting to write a little bit different. So we recorded, I think, three or four songs in uh, as a demo tape in uh, a friend's shed, his dad's shed. He turned it into a four-track studio in there. Awful quality. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't know, but Keith sent the cassette away to a couple of labels, and one of them was Sarah, and he got a, he got a letter back, I think. Yes. It's quite quite an interesting time, isn't it? Because this was kind of the very early 90s and and sort of, I suppose, I do a lot of interviews at the moment. Last night I was doing one with the guy who was in a band called Girls Against Boys who were kind of one of these real grungy kind of double, you know, two bass players, you know, amazing rough vocals, you know, and I was thinking, God, this was happening at the same time that you know, all the Sarah records was happening. Yeah, that, yeah, you know, yeah. So there was kind of a huge diversity. I'm sure that it's always the case, but having done this show for quite a few years, and especially on the 80s, I didn't realise the sort of the layers almost of kind of different bands and different scenes and different clubs that were happening all within a kind of short period of time. And thinking that, you know, because I don't know. Oh, it was a band, another band from Dublin called The Power of Dreams, Craig, who I interviewed the night before. And he was just saying it's a very, it was a very strange time because that was the late 80s and early 90s that they were hitting it. And then, you know, you had Nevermind. And then you suddenly everybody wanted that next, you know, Soundgarden, Pole Jam, you know, lots of Czech shirts, men with that long hair, Jack Daniels yeah. singing, singing songs about issues with their um, stepfather in small town America. Mm. Yeah, it was, a, it was, a. I mean, you can, you can see some, from some of the reviews in the press at the time, Melody Maker and the like, that um, it, people picked on the label and the bands because, yeah, they, they were, it was a sort of label with sort of sensitivities and honesty. It wasn't all macho and it wasn't, you know, big sound walls of sound and production and anger and uh, aggression we weren't I mean, we didn't we didn't deliberately do things against that it just it wasn't a natural thing for us to do and um you know i i had many sort of favorite bands that were a bit like that but in terms of what we were writing and what we listened to you know we were listening to the pale fountains and felts and um you know Cocteau Twins, Chesterfields, that kind of thing. And that's that's what we were sort of aspiring to, to, to sort of, not sound like, but to, to, they, they were sort of our influences. And so Sarah was a natural choice 
but it was one of, as you say, very, very few. It's quite a brave, brave thing to do. And it was also that time, 1991, 92, that was the sort of almost the end of the era of posting things in jiffy bags with letters and cassettes with labels on, you know, you know, quite soon after that, you know, it started to get a bit digital and yes, but we were still doing it in a very traditional way. And uh, the studios we were using, you know, were, were, were quite, quite basic as well. So that probably comes across in a lot of the production sort of non-production. <laughs> so what were you, when, when you were growing up, were you, was it a musical house that you were sort of brought up in? Uh, yeah, my, my, um, there was always music in the home for sure. My, my mum and dad were always playing records. And I think one of my earliest memories was my dad bringing down his old dance set record player from the loft and, and, uh, giving it to my brother and I, and he stuck on, um, a bit of Dave Brubeck and some blimey and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I would have been about, you know, six, seven, eight years old, I guess. Dave Brubeck, so he was a bit of a jazz guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad liked jazz, yeah, and a bit of rock and roll. Yeah, right, yeah. yes. Yeah. So what sort of together. early, you know, did you have that moment, you know, when you're either watching Top of the Pops or hearing something on telly that you thought, God, that's just an amazing thing? Because I could, because I was born in 1964 without giving too much away, but anyway, I was. So it was kind of, you know, I just remember the glam period being particularly kind of like, wow, mm -hmm. you know, sweet, slave. T-Rex obviously yep. I wanted to be in Gary Glitter's gang and um, luckily David Bowie was my first single and my first love with Space Oddity so that was handy but I do remember before that occasional moments you know like Scylla Black you know she had a show called Scylla and there was a track it used to open called Step Inside Love which to mm -hmm. be honest you know she was way ahead of you know grunge and the pixies because it was that kind of so quiet, loud, quiet. And then I found out years later it was written by John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And I thought, wow, no wonder it was such a good song. So I just wondered if you'd had a sort of moment like that where something really excited you. Uh, growing up and being at school, it, it was it was a thing to be. You're either, you're either into football or you're in a band, really. And uh, I definitely didn't want to be into football. <laughs> and uh, so... I mean, my, my first sort of musical sort of, um, uh, I don't know what you'd sort of call it really, but realisation that I wanted to play music. I, I wanted to play drums. And so I, I had some drum lessons and I played drums for the school. Sadly, I uh, could never have a drum kit at home. So I used to go around a, a mate's house regularly and, and pester him. And, we used to play together. My God, but their parent, his parents must have been so religious. A huge house, huge house. <laughs> so, um, no, that, that wouldn't happen. So the next best thing was guitar. And um, obviously I liked a lot of bands like, um, I was quite into the Stranglers growing up. That's they were quite a big influence on me. And... Uh, and you know, watching Top of the Pops, you try and work out, you try and see what what chords the guitarist was playing, and this kind of thing. And I love the different sounds. And yeah, I was into Sparks as well, and a bit of glam. And so, my parents bought me a guitar. Said you can't have a drum kit; it's a guitar instead. It was, it was as simple as that. And I was fifteen, and uh, started to play along to the radio and try and work out what the what the chords were. And before I knew it, I was writing my own things. I'm really enjoying it. 
my fingers bled and I got blisters, but I stuck at it. I also had um, classical lessons. Nice. And I was a huge Django Reinhardt fan and still am. And always will be. It was like Tommy Iona, wasn't it? From Iona? For the Black Sabbath guy, I think that was his yeah. inspiration because he lost his finger in a, a well, yeah. sheet, sheet metal welding accident. Yeah, his, his fingers met, melted together in a fire. Um, and yeah, I had classical lessons because I loved the sound of classical guitar. And that's why I loved bands like Pale Fountains because they use that within the structure of the pop song. And I just think it adds a, a really, really beautiful element and I wanted to be the person that played the classical guitar in a band, that kind of thing. So uh, I then progressed sort of electric guitar. I bought myself a, a sort of 60 quid electric guitar from my local music shop. Nice. And instead of an amplifier, I sort of fiddled around with the wires and, and used the preamp in my parents' hi-fi, uh, which broke it. It uh, distorted <laughs> after that. But yeah, that was so, this is early days. This is, gosh, this is like not early 80s. Right. So with the Stranglers, because you mentioned them, was it, there was a track that I can remember just being absolutely amazed by. It was Duchess. I mean, that was just the most. Raven album, yeah. Mm -hmm. That was just amazing. I, I, you know, I wasn't a big fan of the band, apart from they did an incredible version of Walk On By, which I just, to this day, still think was awesome. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, I mean, their the first um I think people write them off as this kind of sexist, aggressive sort of pub rock outfit, but it's it's not the singles, it's the album tracks, you know, that you, you know, track seven on side two of like the second LP. And they're kind of, it's just the musicianship I would stack up against, you know, the radio head of today or the, you know, it, the, the just four very talented musicians and a great, great collaborative sound. They did many, many, explored many different styles each of their albums is very different from the others yeah which i think is very hard it's very hard to achieve across seven eight nine lps that's that's quite a that's quite a, a feat um so yeah they were a fairly big influence um gosh many many other bands um, so did punk sort of slightly pass you by in that way that um it passed me by because I, I grew up uh, my i was 12 was in the countryside all right, my brother was three years older than me and I used to hang out with him and his mates and some of his mates were older. So they used to go up to, you know, down the King's Road and come back wearing bondage t-shirts and all this sort of stuff. So I was, and yeah, I thought the pistols were amazing. I remember, I remember seeing the Grundy interview on TV when it happened. And, uh, my, and uh, you know, my brother and I looked at each other and we just went, they look brilliant. <laughs> when they, they, they sort of did... Uh, was it Pretty Vacant or God Save the Queen? I can't remember. So, yeah, that whole attitude of you just pick up a guitar with a bunch of mates and start turning your guitar up loud and start cranking out songs. It was the, the sort of DIY music. You know, you realised anyone could do it. And so, yeah, that appealed, that ethic appealed, which I guess sort of spurred me on a bit more to do it. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I mean, that's... I suppose I had... I remember Alice Cooper doing Schools Out and, um, I mean... Obviously, that's about three years earlier, but it was still, you know, it was just kind of one of those, my God, how can they get away with that? And your parents hated it as well. So that sort of double, double excitement, really, wasn't it? So in the 80s. And some of the bands from that time, but they, they really lasted, you know, they really lasted. You think of a band like The Damned with Just Can't Be Happy Today or Plan 9, Channel 7. And you listen to it now, it's, it's still, you know, it leaps off the vinyl. It's absolutely brilliant. 
you know. Yes. Well, it's in, yes, because a couple of nights ago I did an interview with old Chris Spedding, who who did that song Motorbiking, I think. And he was also a Womble, but he also did the early demo tapes for the Sex Pistols. He sort of put them in the studio and said, look, I'll, I'll get you three good tracks from your, you know, let's just try and get something together. So it was quite a nice connection, really. Early days, early days. Mm. Very early days. So that was, um, yeah. So as the 80s trucked on, no, actually the 70s trucked on, then... 79, Thatcher gets in, everything changes, doesn't it? It's a game changer. Then we had the, you know, the Falkland crisis, then the minor strike. And then 83, the Smiths appear, things change drastically. So what was that kind of period like for you? Um, very exciting. Yeah, I was, I was spending probably a lot of my money and time listening to records, buying records, seeing bands um, as much as possible. What was your first record and first gig? Oh, I can't say the first record. No, actually, it's not too bad. It was called Substitute by a band called Clout. And you've never heard of it. No. But, but I heard it on the radio and I cycled up the shops and I spent my singles were 63p. Right, I yes. I my money on that. And um, so, yeah, not a very significant record. Um my first gig, my first proper gig, this is slightly more impressive. My first proper gig was uh, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, about 1980, I think Souvenir just come out. So that's right. 84. But I grew up in a town called Reading, which is probably now known for its festival. But before that, it had a really great sort of... Um, independent scene if you like uh lots and lots of venues putting on some great bands and it, it used to be sort of on the sort of band circuit you know brilliant i saw brilliant corners i saw my bloody valentine uh when they first did their ep they would sort of stop off at reading because it seemed to be the first big town out of london down the M4 towards Bristol. So we got a lot of great bands and uh, I, I managed to see quite a few. House of Love, who else? Yeah. Actually, it's just, I think it was just kind of quite a lucky time, even though you, we didn't appreciate it at the moment but during that, you know, those years. But, you know, we had those kind of three weekly music papers. We had every city and town had an alternative venue night, didn't they? You know, on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, like the Arts Centre in Norwich. And you had, you know, like the Princess Charlotte and the Duchess... I'm not going to go around the entire country, but everybody had an alternative cup where you knew 200 people would sort of, you know, with, with sort of white pasty skin who hadn't seen the sun and looked a bit insecure would Still turn up where, right. spend £2.50 yeah, yeah. and see three bands. It was that sort of thing, wasn't it? Because actually John, the John Peel session, you know, like you had these gatekeepers and I suppose, you know, though that comes with a certain amount of responsibility. Yeah, it just kind of meant that, you know, you didn't have to rely on your friends and family to go and see you, your, you know, band playing live. Yeah. And frankly, after that. I don't, I don't want to sound like, I don't want to sound like sort of father time here, but I don't know. We, I think we come from the same sort of universe and we've straddled the sort of the pre-digital age and we're in the digital age. And uh, obviously everyone's going to say their youth was the best, but really, if you haven't stood and watched three noisy oily bands drinking lager out of a plastic cup three quid on a wednesday you haven't really experienced how music can change you and move you and what it's all about music is a live thing 
it's not a download. You know, a, a download is is the sort of the thinnest version of what music actually is. But of course, we live in an age now where I don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't think the average seventeen-year-old dreams of going to see a live band. That's probably not, no, not up there. I want to do, but. I know, I know the the obsession with sort of like I've got all these you know NME cassettes you know from that period as well that I used to sort of always buy even if it was the jazz one, the country and western, the soul yeah. one, the reggae, the African you know obviously the C eighty six one as well. You just kind yeah. of would want to buy them because it was just like oh my god I must go and consume that and spend all Saturday afternoon going around record shops to find one seven inch single and go oh I must go and I heard this yeah. one feel so it was kind of yeah I mean it's yes, it, it wasn't too prescriptive you did have a choice it wasn't saying you've got to be into this and if you're not into this you're rubbish whereas I think that is the case now there's lots of pressure to sort of dress a certain way look a certain way be a certain shape I mean I, I you know, back then it was a kind of I used to go to these, uh, there was, a, as you just said, there was an alternative night at this great place. It was an old ballroom in Reading. It was on a Sunday night. And it's, I think it was two quid to get in. And obviously you would dance to your favourite records and all your mates. And then something like, you know, the Sisters of Mercy would come on and you go, oh no, this is crap. And then all the goths would get up and they would be <laughs> happy. But we sort of, you sort of, um, everyone got on with each other. There wasn't sort of, there wasn't the same sort of pressures as there is now. So... Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a, it, yeah, that tribalism was quite weird because I do remember just before that, the late 70s, still being at school. And because I come from the you know, East Anglia, the countryside, and everybody was the main band that you mustn't, mustn't say anything against was status quo because you'd have got beaten up quite badly. <laughs> and, um, and it was kind of weird because occasionally you'd hear. How many times get beaten up? Pardon? So how many times did you get beaten up? I, I've, I've, I'd never said anything against the quo, Christ. I mean, you just would just get beaten. <laughs> you would just laugh. But the thing is, you wouldn't even admit that you liked the beat and mirror in the bathroom because you would, you know, oh, you'd... No, I, I, bought, I bought that as with my pocket money. That was probably my third or fourth record. But it was a great record. And you went, oh, my God, this is great. But he's like, oh, I mustn't pretend I like it because I'm a mod. Because it was so, you know, it was really, you know, it probably anybody listened to this. <laughs> would just go no that can't be right but he was like no you're a rocker or a mod and if you're a mod you're a the big band to love at my school was marillion and if you didn't like marillion you you, you could get physically abused yeah really and uh i always remember this the anecdote that malcolm mccrown said he first noticed johnny rotten walking down uh, some street in london because he had a t-shirt that said i hate pink floyd <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I know. It's kind of I know, but that was such a that was such a statement, you know. That was such a thing, and uh, you know, just people would, you know, that's the way you would sort of try and annoy each other was just saying, you know, you didn't like their main favorite band, or you you made out. Yeah, yeah. That, someone said they like a certain band, that kind of you immediately have this idea of all their politics, and <laughs> if they've got a sense of humor, if you're going to get on with them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. yeah. I just remember. I don't think it was me, but I don't know. I might have done. But I remember there's a lot of heavy metal people and you'd make out that Angus from ACDC was going to die of brain cancer because he'd been headbanging. That would really upset people, you know, but you would just put those, you know, just put those out there, you know, because they go, no, he can't be dying. He's like, yeah, I'm afraid he's going to die because of headbanging, mate. You know, it, it does your brain. And, you know, he's still alive, isn't he? Which is amazing. You know, that, that rumour from 1980, something was was flawed really but it was so you know it was kind of such a theme wasn't it you know there was there was no kind of 
you know, and then doing this show, I didn't realize, and I should have done, so it shows how much I was paying attention, but there was a goth scene, was there the Paisley scene, or new Paisley scene, there was all these kind of clubs like uh, Alice in Wonderland, which was in London, and, and you know, Doctor and the Medics, and then, you know, there was like, oh, Christ, I just, <clears throat> I just had it's like, there was this bit of Trevor Horn production sound with, you know, those main bands, indie sort yep. of stuff, but there was all this other subsection, which I had slightly missed because I wasn't in London. Possibly, yeah. It could, it can be a regional thing, definitely a regional thing. Yes. Yeah. But now people are bringing out books on on all these things, which is fine. I was just going to try and find one. Yes. So, did you ever go to those kind of trendy clubs and hang out with trendy people? Like, look. Oh gosh, no. We were very unfashionable. After catch a lot of the priest, my the Alice in Is she the? Sorry, I'm going to sound really thick now. Is she the photographer as well? No, actually, that's a bloke. Christian Paris was... Um, no, Alice in Wonderland. It's not meant to, to quote the photographer, Alice in Wonderland. I don't, I don't know. I don't... Yes, anyway. No, so... the question. We, we didn't hang out with anyone remotely fashionable or go anywhere remotely fashionable. I, I think it was, it was publications like The Face that made me really insecure, actually, because I, I just realised I was never going to hang out at a Yeah, club. yeah, yeah. With Boy George and Sade and and, and hang out with members of Spandau Ballet because it was just like it was like my God they're, they're just you know and and the fact that you could get rejected from going to a club you didn't even want to go to was even more horrifying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I get we places like Kensington Market and Hyper Hyper kind of hung out around there, but mainly mainly to yeah sort of buy records rather than do anything else. But yeah, I know what you mean about the magazine, the face. There's also ID magazine and. I just I'd read that from cover to cover and be absolutely clueless. So, <laughs> yeah, yes, I know. Like, I'm like, too rural for that. I think. I know, and the Arena magazine as well. I know, and, and then Q magazine appeared at some time, didn't they, and changed the yeah. whole thing. So, when did you when did you and Keith first meet in the in the good old days of the eighties? So, <laughs> um, we we were quite regular church goers as kids, and there was this. Uh, my, I went with my brother a lot. And uh, we went to this beautiful old traditional church and um, he'd mentioned this guy called Keith who he'd met at like the youth club and said he was a very cool guy. And he said, uh, he, he wants to meet you because he knows that you're, you want to start a band and you play a little bit. So I said, oh, okay, anyway, I went to church one Sunday and uh, I noticed a couple of pews in front, this guy with a sort of really cool hat on and he was with his thumbnail, he was, etching the word Dexys into the wood in front and I tapped my brother on the shoulder I said look at that and he said oh that's Keith he wants to chat to you afterwards so I thought oh great he, he sounds really cool so he he was graffitiing <laughs> <laughs> into the into the church pew which remained years after that actually I was going to say is it still there uh very likely and uh so yeah we got chatting afterwards um in in uh, in the sort of churchyard, and uh, I think maybe the next week I went round there. You went there. God, it's yeah, like that it iconic was. picture of the of the early Beatles when they were the was it the Quarrymen with you oh, know yeah, Paul, yeah. Paul and John at some sort of on the trailer sort of playing before they yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, or, or Morrissey or Morrissey and Marth. So this was the moment that that the band kind of had its moment. Kind of, it's quite spiritual here, isn't it? 
Pretty much, yeah. And um, you know, there's quite when you listen to the lyrics, some of Keith's lyrics, it's quite there's some references there. I mean, you know, we we, we took this all very seriously, you know, and uh, uh, it was a it was a really lovely time. We grew up we grew up in uh, just outside Reading. It's quite a rural place, a little village. And yeah, it was very ideal. It was uh, bicycles along by the river and listening to, you know, our favourite bands on on L Records and Cherry Red and uh, and writing songs. And um, that's where it started. That would have been about, yeah, quite early, about 83 again, sort of that. My God. That sort of 83, 84 sort of era, that was when it started to begin, yeah. Is, is it a bit like the, was it the comic strip, Five Go Mad? On bikes, down exactly country like lines. Exactly like that, yeah. Timmy, you're so licky. <laughs> People won't have a clue what that means, will they? Um, <laughs> so was there, so there was a definite, a good vibe chemistry between the two of you? Yeah, straight away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I look, Keith was a couple of years older than me. I looked up to him. He's a very, very cool guy, very stylish. He, everyone wanted to sort of know Keith. He was very funny. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, but, um, and he had an amazing book collection and record collection. And I used to go around every Sunday afternoon with my guitar, uh, on my bicycle, and he'd have some album or 12 inch, or he'd say, oh, listen to this. He'd say, do you reckon we could do something like this? You know, and it'd be some, some, uh, might be like a Swans record or something like that. And, um, and yeah, so we would we would just make sets. We had dozens of cassettes of ideas, and it might just be me playing sort of two or three chords, and him just kind of there, looking out of his window with sort of notepad and pen, scribbling down some words, this sort of thing. Blimey. And then um, yeah, that's that's kind of how we how we we crafted things together. Uh, and, when, and then later, on, I would I would sort of make a cassette of four or five songs or something, and then post it to him. And then he'd he'd sort of record himself singing over it and post it back, and then we developed it that way. So it was very sort of very DIY. God, that is nice, isn't it? So when so during that sort of eighties period, you know, and you mentioned the Cocteau Twins earlier, and then, and I always mention the Smiths, so predictable. But then, um, you know, you had you know like bands like the June Brides, and we'd had Orange Juice, and then. There was that sort of real sense of the indie world of the 80s, which I put, you know, indie pop of the 80s was 83 to 87, which was the years of the Smiths, because there was definitely a kind of a, a bit of a vibe. And then the Smiths broke up and then Ecstasy and the next wave of 16 to 18 year olds wanted their soundtrack, which was going to be a bit different to what we yeah. Yeah. So, so what was that period like with you, you know, listening to every Smiths album? I'm, I'm assuming you did. <laughs> um. You didn't, did you? Yeah, funny you should mention that because, because obviously indie originally meant ind independent of the sort of top 40, so you had an indie chart, independent yes. chart. But it became, it became a, a sort of a brand name, didn't it, for any band that wasn't that commercial. So you used to say, oh, that's an indie band. And then Kylie and Kylie would be in the indie bands because of... I know, and then it got single. confused. Maybe on an independent label, would say, Kylie's not indie. Well, yes. she is. Because she's on an independent label. And that, that so, other guy, um, yeah, that's got Nobody the up was number one, wasn't he? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so what was it like? Well, just more the same, really. I mean, but but by then, yeah, bands like Everything But The Girl, Orange Juice, um, and, you know, some others you've mentioned there. We, uh, yeah, and bands like Felt, 
we we started to that started to really influence us in what we were striving for in terms of a sound we want that kind of acoustic pop was it the case that you was it the case that you were looking at music as a full-time occupation or i know i did an interview with amelia fletcher who obviously comes with a huge cv and but she's got another you know huge other career really and she always thought she she just kept the 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 career in academia going because she couldn't work out how you'd make money on the music front which seems to work well did you play you know most people were like no music's going to be what i'm into in that beautiful youthful way uh no i mean i was i was quite firmly rooted in in the ground unfortunately and realized that maybe we wouldn't make a living out of this i mean um I actually knew a guy, a nice guy, Christian, who was in Slow Dive. I don't know if you know the band. Yes. And um, this was at a time when, you know, they really took off and they were going to Japan and America and around Europe and this and the other. But I remember seeing him um, sort of after a tour, after an album came out or something, just sort of wandering around in, you know, his suede jacket kind of, looking in bookshops and record shops and had a chat with him you know and uh you know it's it it sort of struck me I, I didn't didn't know if I wanted that kind of sort of life sort of thing and um because because music and taste were changing so rapidly you know a band could uh, you were lucky if you lasted sort of two or three albums and you were still going yes we figured that let's just keep the two things going at the same time so yeah we've we've always had careers jobs and careers and even touring i remember i remember going into uh see a boss to ask if i could have two weeks off work and he said uh you doing anything exciting i said yeah going to japan with the band so it it was i had to get i had to get time off work to do that and then i rang matt that night and said yeah i can get the time off we can fly to japan it was it was sort of that ridiculous uh, so no, never, never. I didn't really think I'd make a, a a career out of music. Yeah, the other band who was exact, not exactly like that, but very similar, which was really surprising, was the Australian punk band, the Hard Ons. I did an interview with both two of the members, and you know, he all the way through that period, he was at university and would just kind of go right we've got a couple of months off you know let's just tour like hell then back study you know right I can I can get a few essays done then we can have a bit more space I can get in the studio then mm. I've got my exams and then we can have the summer you know it's like I'm oh, blimey I, it was like god sure. you were really quite organized unlike a lot of pans yeah. you know so um yes there you go the hard ones it's got to be done yes so there you go so when did you start you know thinking you weren't going to be you know, Simon and Garfunkel, and you needed more people in, in your team. Okay, so um, we did the, uh, we had the response from Matt and Claire, and we went down to um, the studio in Western Supermare to record the single. Needed some drums on there, so um, got in touch with Lloyd, who is the Fever Q drummer, and he said, yeah, 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 he's at a loose end, he'd happily join. And I did the bass and some other effects and things. So between the three of us, we sort of created that sound. And then, you know, driving back, we realised we ought to get a band together. And um, if we wanted to do this seriously and, and start writing with, with uh, still writing ourselves, we we were always the nucleus of the band. Yes. 
because uh, we felt as though we had the strongest vision and we'd come so far through that together. Um, and then we, I think it was in 1990, I moved into a house, a house share, and the guy helping me um, move my stuff in spotted my guitar said, oh, I play bass. And that was Mark. He became the bass player in the band. And then we put an ad out for a singer and we were lucky enough to get Gemma to Brilliant. reply. That was so lucky. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, we had a chat with her and uh, went for coffee with her. And then she threw into the conversation, oh, I play piano and cello, if that's of any use. So um, bingo, that was the sort of the five of us. So that was, that, that was there was five of us uh, sort of at the beginning. And then Harvey joined, <clears throat> we asked Harvey to join just to give that fuller sound. Cause I, I was doing a lot of overdubs in the studio, lots of guitars. And of course, when you go and play live, you can't recreate that. Yes. So you need an, another uh, another voice as it were. And so Harvey was a great addition to the band. And um, you know, a real <coughs> Yeah. Henry, and he's got br brilliant, uh, he's a great musician, great uh, influences as well. And uh, I think he fitted, fitted in with us all and we eventually you know that was the, the sort of the sixth piece and i guess that's what um and we did unisex and um, and we toured that and then we we toured quite a bit as the sixth piece and i think looking back that's probably where we sort of peaked yeah as a, so you did if wishes were horses with sarah records in 92 and then 94 was unisex wasn't it yeah so that was quite an intense time. And did you feel, and that's when obviously you got the John Peel session. Was that, I think that was the winter of 1994 as well, wasn't it? Yes, it was, yeah. yeah. So that must have been. In between that. So, and, and the other thing with Sarah is that you don't, you don't have any of your B-sides or your singles on any albums. So if you do an album and two singles, that's an album and six other songs. So it's almost like a mini LP in between the next album so it was a lot we were writing a lot of material it's a lot of hard yeah. work god that was quite a, a moment and did you i mean as, as i mentioned margaret thatcher then in 1991 we had the john lloyd uh, john lloyd john major years did you um and then you know obviously the grunge period and then there was that change with with other bands starting to come through like I suppose we'd had the Levelers and then we had sort of Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine, and then sort of those early days with people like Blur and then Pulp were starting to sort of come through. I'm not quite sure if Pulp was coming through at that stage. But anyway, things were changing again. Did you start to feel something in the air that you were sort of going to be at the right place at the right time for the next kind of musical zeitgeist? We did, yeah. And um, we also thought that, you know, it, it would be quite easy to do another unisex album, but we didn't want to do that. We didn't want to do that. And um, after tour, after playing a lot live, quite a lot, and we, we did this tour in France and um, we'd become quite, um, what's the word? They're very energetic and dynamic. And we wanted to get that live feel across a little bit more in the songwriting. So, the next single and Bank of England was a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more live sounding, which coincided a bit with the Britpop era, but it wasn't like we were saying, oh, we want to be like 
a Britpop band. It just... Yeah. And what was the dynamic like? Because obviously it's an incredibly, as you probably know more when you look back at the, you know, thinking, my God, this is the complexities of being in the band and the dynamics and everyone getting on. Because you don't all sit down and have a really open chat to begin with because we're in the honeymoon phase, which is always the best period that you don't really discuss all those really important things that would be really useful until years later when it all goes slightly strange. Yeah. So did you, I mean, was were you managing to navigate that kind of dynamic within the sort of six piece or the six members? It was quite tricky because we all lived in different sort of parts of the southeast and um, people had their sort of solo projects going on as well and people were sort of, thinking of getting married and settling down. Mark wanted to move back up north. Um, Gemma was working very hard and eventually she went on to to, to be uh, an author and have a family and that kind of thing. Keith, you know, went, went down to Brighton and was very much secluded down there. So keeping it all together was very hard, very difficult. And um, yeah, that's what kind of eventually meant we sort of, sort of split away a bit and had a rethink we'd also been approached by siesta keith and i and we started this kind of fantasy 60s dream pop project called arabesque and we oh, did blimey. Few, yeah we did a few singles for them and that went on to become beaumont and we did three albums as beaumont so that was all new material that was all kind of that was that was going on sort of sort of at the same time so, yeah, the Bank of England just about got cobbled together. Um, new people in the band, new drummer, new bass player. I did all the guitars. And Keith sang with Kath. And Kath sang on, sang with some Fever Few sort of era stuff. So she came back on board. And, yeah, that, that was on um, Matt's Shinkansen label. So Sarah Records had finished. We did the 100 party. And we felt a bit of a loose end, really. And I think a lot of the bands did because Sarah had sort of nurtured us. That was our one and only sort of label that we'd been on. And they'd sort of held our hand through the whole sort of time. And so when they were parting, it was almost like your parents getting divorced. It's like, what are we yes. now? Do you know to? So, so Matt started his Shinkansen label and that was, that was, we had an invitation from him, which was lovely to, to, to do the Blue Boy stuff with him, which we did. That was a natural choice for us. Um, but it didn't have the same reputation and backing uh, as Sarah had built up. And so it, it remained largely unheard. And uh, that's a shame because there were some, some other great bands on his label. Um, but that didn't, that didn't sort of last the distance. I'm not sure how many, issue, uh, how many records in total were issued on the label, but um, our third and final Blue Boy album was on Shinkansen. That was the Bank of England. Yeah. Ninety-eight, I think I came up. So when you were doing those other projects you just mentioned, like Beaumont, was that yeah. in the early O years? Yeah. So that's um, yeah. Well, we done that... arabesque stuff in sort of late nineties, I think. Arabesque, just a few singles for Siesta, and they were on some compilation albums as well. But then um, they they'd approached us and said, "Look, now that the Blue Boy thing is kind of." over it's not happening do you want to kind of have a rethink so we had a rethink and uh we thought seriously about how how we could sort of maybe do an al album of, of sort of 
similar things that we've been doing sort of latin jazz kind of loungy kind of stuff which we we like to we love to listen to as well but of course that would never have fitted you can't do that in a band when you when people expect you to sound a certain way and that can be a limiting thing yeah so is a, that is quite tricky i mean the only i don't know the only thing that comes to mind is, I suppose, David Bowie's Low album. You know, I mean, he'd already done, obviously, his kind of strange 60s stuff, which was kind of, you know, it's a bit bizarre. Then he did the much more straightforward-ish kind of yeah, Ziggy yeah. stuff. But then he kind of went, you know, I'm not quite exactly sure, but it was the, you know, Diamond Dogs and Young Americans, then Station to Station. And then he hits Low, and you're thinking, yeah, oh, that's quite bonkers. But it's like when you go and see a band, you know, they've been together for 25 years, the songs that everyone goes crazy about are the ones, you know, the, the sort of the earlier singles that everyone knows. And, you know, the, they do stuff off their new album and it's kind of, yeah, okay. We all go to the toilet, don't we? I know. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we didn't <laughs> want to be like that, you know, so end, end yes. on a high. Well, I, and, I, I uh, mean, it's, it's strange because in the last couple of weeks, I don't know why, but I've been really going back and listening to a lot of Suzanne Vega and watching lots of her concerts and stuff. And I realised that, you know, she, I didn't realise she'd sort of kept going and still going and um, has quite a good catalogue of stuff. But, you know, you just know that it is good. Like you just said, it's going to be like, OK, she's going to do the first album. Brilliant. That's the stuff. The rest is good. But and I'm really pleased that she's kind of stuck with it. But, yeah. you know, it's and what what is it that made those songs, you know, in my mind, God, they're memorable, aren't they? You know, whether you liked it or not, it was like, God, that was a memorable song. Whereas you listen to an, a, another album and you think, it's good, but it's not going to catch, you know, how many times I've played that, it's not going to have that kind of moment, you know. It's, I don't know, I mean... It's become nostalgic, and nostalgia is a very powerful medium. It's a very powerful thing, you know. It's uh, from, you know, the, the, the song you danced to and had your first snog with at the school disco to you know your first live band you saw the first record you bought these are these are landmark nostalgic moments in your life and it doesn't matter if the song is good or not very good and that's that's always you know that's but do you but do you think it is i mean i'm aware that nostalgia plays a huge part and especially with our politicians now who all hark back to a time that didn't exist but we all pretend arcadia was there and it's all very romantic before the industrial revolution and and that's kind of really powerful to to keep you know pushing that kind of image of something that you know didn't exist because you know people vote for it which is kind of interesting but on the music front there is just like i just think you're an artist, you know, you must think, God, that, that some of those songs you can listen to and think that was amazing. And others, I don't know if you do, but, you know, think, well, it's got all the bits there, but it somehow didn't quite have the same lyrics. I mean, if you listen to, dear old, I know, Morrissey, you listen to his Smith stuff, you think, wow. Listen to his early solo stuff, you think, wow. And then even, I know, it's a bit tricky with Morrissey, isn't it? but, you know, his later stuff, without thinking about anything else, you know, it's like, yeah, these lyrics aren't quite so amazing. I don't know. Or you, you can't, you, for me, yeah, for me, those, those opening few bars of Suede Head, you can't really, you can't, you can't, he peaked then. <laughs> his first single of me. I mean, yeah, his, his, his earlier stuff, absolutely brilliant. But again, is that because it's nos the nostalgia? It was still... But this charming man, all those lyrics to you know, there is a light that never goes out. I just think, you know, the first time you heard that, you think, Christ, that's, you know, 
could, you know, could you do yeah, that it, now? You know, it could be more perfect in a way, but I think because maybe the innocence of those lyrics and that time matched your own some you know innocence in your own life, and so you're reminded of of, of that time of, of when things were perhaps way way better. I know. Well, it's possibly true. A purity about it, I think. There's a purity about it. There is something about, I mean, Lemmy from Motorhead used to say, who I think is also brilliant, um, that, you know, you, you know you, that 16 to 18-year-old, that's only going to happen once in your life, and those are the songs you remember. So he remembers Little Richard, Buddy Holly, you know, Eddie Cochran, you know, that's going to be the music and the, and the Beatles. You know, it doesn't yeah. matter what happens later on in your life you're not that 16 year old person who's absolutely no. obsessed with that record that seven inch you know piece of vinyl that you're going to play endlessly and the b-side when you get really brave you know so i understand that you know you can't be that person again you know no the music has a way of unlocking your past in a way that a photograph can't or a you know it's um it, it, I think it, there must be, I'm sure there must be some scientific evidence that certain, you know, you, you've got a sort of audible memory somewhere. And when you hear something that was a wonderful time in your life, that it will, it will always unlock that and you will feel some of that, you know, some of your youth comes back. And I think that's probably what it is. A lot yeah. Of and it is strange because it's like, what do you decide to concentrate on? I know some people want to sort of always bring up something that bad happened. You think, oh, okay. And other people have edited bits and it's going to be just the happy times. You know, it's, oh, that yeah. wasn't all marvellous. And <laughs> I'm always that person who goes, yeah, it was good, but there was also that. And if someone's really negative, I always go, it wasn't that, you know, that, that happened then. That was that incident that you know if you repeat every day of your life it's certainly that one moment is going to it kind of grow isn't it with time so <clears throat> you know I think um I'm a liberal I suppose there you go I sort of try and keep a balance to all these things but yeah the innocence of youth is quite nice isn't it but then so in the year oh years after we'd celebrated the, the fantastic millennium and everything was great and team Tony was just making it all feel Great. We were things were only going to get better, did they? Just um, you didn't know Kate Spade music. What was yeah. what was this? Well, we got contacted out of the blue by um, this uh, lovely lady who was the creative director at Kate Spade, who I'd never heard of. They're a huge uh, American women's uh, luxury brand, shoes, handbags, stationery, scent, this kind of thing. The whole, and, the whole um, business. I mean, it is, it's yeah. just, it's yeah, like. Yeah. I'll tell you what happened and you won't believe it. Okay. I still can't believe it. So we got a, we got a, a letter or an email, a letter and it was, um, she bought the first Beaumont album in Tokyo. Kate Spade did. No, this lady who is her, their, their um, creative director. Right. Sorry. He was in, in Tokyo and she, she picked up the uh the Beaumont, the first Beaumont album that we did based on the sleeve alone she said um which was designed by myself a very proud moment and uh she took it back to a hotel room and played it and she thought this this music sounds like i want kate spade to sound this sounds like our our values and our feel and our quirkiness our sense of humor and um so she contacted us and said would you 
would you write some music uh, exclusively for our, our our brand, Kate Spade Company, and we'll we'll release it as a CD in our shops of Kate Spade Music, but it'll be by you. So we said, uh, hang on there. And so we said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Absolutely great idea. Did you, did, so, you, did you negotiate a fee or did you just say, give us some handbags and some shoes and we'll be happy? Well, well um, so as, as things sort of progressed <clears throat> um, and we talked about it more, we, we realised the project could be quite, quite something, quite exciting. So it eventually snowballed into an eight-track album with uh, string quartet, string arranger, concert pianist, and um, followed by a tour of six of their stores across the US, which they paid for all of this. My God, you just walked into the, you know, wretched yeah. hymns of the face would have been jealous of you at this stage. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So it was a, it was a real dream project. It was a, a very creative, creative time. And, uh, and I gladly, gladly said yes. And so um, we, we did that. But... Um, it um it hasn't happened since it hasn't happened again it was it was just a, a one-off we were very very lucky right place right time so you recorded this in 03 at the church road studios in Eng england Do, who was your producer that was julian tardo at church road studios wonderful julian and uh he put me in touch with a string arranger dave smith and he knew i wanted a real string quartet and so we talked about budget went back to kate spade and they said yep yeah, when do you want to start? We're talking about a company that flies a handbag to Japan for a photo shoot and flies back again. I'm not sure they do that now. Um, but uh, yeah, this, this, was, this was very, very, uh, and they were quite, they weren't too prescriptive. They were very sort of, they gave us some influences. They said, they just do, do what you do. We want it to be English and quirky, a bit 60s, quite loungy. Um, want some upbeat stuff, some ballads, um, and uh, yeah, it's like a Latin thing. And a, so yeah, is that so record now available anywhere, or is it really one of those? No, it, no, it's, it's fifteen uh, pound on eBay. Just a. Uh, they, it appears occasionally on on Discogs and eBay, yeah, for a silly amount of money. But um, uh, I had a lovely lavish booklet inside. Yes, because um, on the credits, yeah. there's more photographers than musicians. Yeah, <laughs> they saw they sourced a lot of uh, uh, sort of proper source material from well-known photographers. They wanted it to be, a, you know, really beautiful. It was a beautiful product, I have to say, and I was very lucky to be involved with that. And um, yeah, the, uh, I put a lot of work into that musically. Luckily, I had I had about nine months to spend on that. So. Um, uh, one thing they did, which is very interesting and really helped actually, is they sent me sample books of their sort of some of their patterns and their tweeds. Oh my God, material. you got a mood board, didn't you? Sorry, that was I think they called that a mood board. You know where yeah, they yeah they sent a style guide book and all this kind of stuff. So I remember I covered my flat in all this sort of material. And I remember thinking, what does this what would this sound like if this was a band? If a band turned up. What would it sound like? And so I, I started to write the music and uh, we sent, uh, we had to, I had to do two pieces and send it for approval. So we FedExed off this disc and I sort of waited nervously by the phone and they rung at sort of 11 o'clock at night because this was when they had their sort of morning marketing meeting or something. 
Yeah. They said we've just we've just played the two pieces to our, our board of directors and all this kind of thing, and we absolutely love it. So please carry on. So uh, yeah, very relieved. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, that is yeah. so good. So you were really pleased with the final recording. Yeah, the eight pieces. Yeah, yeah. And on this occasion, your vocals and words were by Kath Close. Yeah, Kath Close. So at the time. Keith was going through a very difficult time in his personal life and uh, he had some tragedy and, and some deaths that he was dealing with and he didn't have the confidence or wherewithal to sort of take this on in a big way. So it was left very much for me to sort of continue that. Uh, we needed a singer. So he'd, he'd written some of the lyrics, um, but Kath came in and sort of carried on the the sort of the vocal role but a, a lot of the work on it is instrumental which is the reason why and yeah. the the next uh, the next the Beaumont album the second Beaumont album there's Keith's vocals aren't on that at all and by then he'd sort of really separated himself from from doing music he, he didn't he wasn't able to continue to do that he didn't feel creative or confident at all so um that's how that happened. God, that must have been devastating for all of yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Because he would have loved, he really wanted to get involved in it, but he's, he said to me, look, I'm not just not going to be able to do it. No, it's completely understandable when, when personal stuff happens. But you yeah. must have been really, I mean, my God, you were really working on this because, you, you know, you've, you had your follow-up album, No Time Like the Past, nice, yeah. <laughs> straight away with, with another kind of quite an amazing lineup with, B.J. Cole on guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He played pedal steel guitar, and uh, I roped in some other musicians that I, I tracked down that I knew. Um, and that was, yeah, it doesn't sit together that well as an album. I'm not that pleased with it, but um, it was the third, so the third and final Beaumont LP uh, again on Siesta, and we'd gone a bit more acoustic, a bit more kind of alt country i guess you could say i was listening to a lot of that kind of thing were you going through a gillian welsh welsh stacy earl kind of phase possibly listening to things like um a girl called eddie and seeing a lot of unplugged stuff and acoustic stuff and stripped it right back down to the songwriting and um yeah it's got it's got an aged quality to it which is why i titled it no time like the past Yes. And was that your, I can't remember that, was that your last kind of musical moment? No, that was the last, uh, well, publicly, I guess, yeah. But uh, after that, uh, I'd, I'd started another project and we'd, we did some gigs. That's called Edwardia. And that was with uh, cello, violin, vocals and me on, on guitars um yeah so in in terms of sort of what's out there published material wise yeah um no time like the past is probably the last the last record which is why we're back to question one and precious records is why it's quite an exciting time i guess because it's our first new material that's released on a on a proper label on a proper yeah plastic that must be quite nice because it was obviously horrendously kind of sad that, um, you know, because Keith died quite soon after those Beaumont releases. Yeah, in, yeah, 07, yeah, yeah. 
cheesy greasy that, that's always yeah. a killer isn't it really yeah. Yeah. no it's not good is it does it Sorry. does it mean that you're you're still kind of feeling you're in the game so to speak that sounds awful yeah i um i record now under the name sepia sound so instead of using my name which would be absolutely dreadful mean nothing to nobody um i've pitched a few things for film and tv and uh i've concentrated on more soundtrack kind of stuff yes. and uh, instrumental so i've released an album under the name cp sound and that's that's out there on these places like spotify and a few others which i can't remember the names of because i'm not young and hip um, but I've got a distributor, I've got my own home studio, so I play everything myself, uh, mix and uh, record it and release it myself. Does it mean that, you know, with the Beaumont stuff, do you own that? I just wondered if you've got that out on Bandcamp or anywhere like that. No, that's, that's, a, that's a difficult one because um, Siesta haven't done any of this kind of reissuing and downloading and anything else like that. They sort of disappeared. I think their website still exists, but any any link that you click, I think it just goes back to their homepage. There's no way of getting in touch with them or anything like that. So some of these wonderful bands and records that were on there, they're sort of floating around with with sort of no home to go to, as it were. Does that um, mean you've got the masters or you own any copies of these? No, I don't own the masters. No, I mean, I um, I had an agreement with them, uh, a sort of royalty agreement, but of course now everything's sold out and uh, deleted and and depleted and whatnot. There's there's no other sort of contact with them, so it it doesn't exist in the digital realm. I don't think. God, that's people, such a pain, isn't it? Yeah, some people have stuck things on YouTube. There's a few things out there, but. Um, and the Kate Spade stuff, I don't think I can do anything with that, but I would love to because uh, there were some beautiful orchestral sort of moments on there, which were, yes. you know, very, uh, you know, really, really interesting and uh, sounded uh, very different to what we've done before. But, but um, yeah, they're kind of stuck. They are stuck, aren't they? You just, <laughs> it's a real shame because in a way, the one thing I've noticed with especially lockdown, God, everybody's been writing their books, haven't they? I mean, that's just been yeah. left, right and centre. You can't move from people, which I think is great. You know, they've kind of got this sort of their story. They've got lots of stuff like posters, memorabilia, and they think, right, I'm writing my book. There's nothing else I'm doing for the next year. So, but archiving, you must be, you know, having your career in various museums, you must be keen to sort of one day want to say, right, that's my body of work as a musician and artist. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I've got lots of um, I've got lots of mixes and things and things that weren't used, and I've I've got I've got quite a bit of stuff, and um, there's there's a, a nice guy called Nick who I talked to in in Bristol. He's very good at sort of cleaning up tapes and cassettes and bits and pieces, and, and I've stuck a few things on the uh, the official Blue Boy YouTube channel. That's where I kind of it's a great to sort of dump stuff there and. Um, write some accompanying notes so it's nice to have somewhere for it to live you know and uh, there's quite a bit on there i've recently recently found um actually richard priest who is uh, in lovejoy he's he's got some O'Keefe's archive and he uh he's kind enough to sort of um give us access to some cassettes and there's a there's a demo we did called temple which uh i've i've uploaded recently temple by 
think we called it by Blue Boy, but I think we were called the Art Bunnies for about three weeks before we settled on Blue Boy. And so it's it's probably under the Art Bunnies. Um, name, names we'd rather forget. And um, <laughs> there are many before on that. And so, yeah, there are a few things surfacing and, um, and, and I'll see things pop up to live tracks, which I've never heard of before. And people have got a, you know, a cassette from a concert we did in wherever. That's the beauty of the digital world, you know, it, it can. Yes, I mean, things surface, you know. it's surprising how many people manage to record something from the mixing desk and then go, oh, does anybody want this? And it's like, oh, my God, I can. I can clean, as you say, someone's out there who can clean it up. And um, to yeah. an obsessive fan in Greece, they'll go, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so that's always good. So with the new release, this new one, which is coming out with the John Peel one session, um, you can get the vinyl, mm-hmm. digital album, yep. and also, yeah, so it's quite a bargain, isn't it? There's a, yeah, there's a, there's a, it's a, seven inch double packs there's two seven inch singles in a gatefold sleeve and uh some sleeve notes and pictures and postcard and stuff and um or you or you can yeah you can do the download um it's a limited run it's only a few hundred i think i think 50 percent on pre-order have sort of sold out um and uh quite a lot have gone abroad i think Yes, you must have. I mean, the, the great thing with this kind of age for people who made music back in the day was that there's now, you know, and Spotify obviously has a sort of mixed blessing, but people do, you know, via Spotify can get to discover things and then yeah. need obsessive fans. And I guess, you know, especially with the book, which was... And they weren't, they weren't even born when you released the record. That's the depressing thing. No, some people that, discovering you. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is kind yeah. of a strange one when you go, "Oh my God, you were born in what year?" Of course, if that yeah. was, you know, that's like two thousand and one or something. I know. Yeah. So yes, so people, I guess, all over the world are going to be wanting this album. Were, were you um, big in Japan? God, that was a Liverpool band, wasn't it? Of course. Um, likes likes like Heavenly and a few others. I think. Yeah, we were quite surprised that we were almost. I wouldn't say better known over there, but we were, um, I think on our first day there, we, we were taken through this massive sports hall with a stage at the end. And I stopped, I said, where, where are we playing? And he, they said, in here. I said, how many people does it hold? He said, 3,000. He said, it's sold out. And then weirdly, this is, this is true, about three or four weeks later, I think we, you know, we came back to the UK and about three or four weeks later, we had a gig at the Camden Falcon on a Wednesday. There's a people. 20 people there talking <laughs> the whole thing. And I remember turning to, I can't remember who, Lloyd, uh, the drummer or something, and saying, do they not know who we are? But this is, you know, this is where we, this is our, this is our home turf. This is the real world. This is the, yeah, I know. Uh, yeah. Just they're speaking, talking all through the lyrics here. You know, they just don't appreciate yeah. it. Three thousand people—that's amazing. I, yeah, it's quite. A, it's two or three thousand, I think. And they're singing some <coughs> of the, lyrics, the lyrics to some of these songs. You know, not in their own language. It's, it's bizarre. Bizarre. It thing. must be. I I did look, but I haven't got it up at the moment. The, the Spotify is always quite interesting of where where people are sort of you know how many listens they get a month, and you think, God, that's. One or two people have often been really. I get that, man. Obviously, you don't get any money, but 
that's life. Oh my God, you get seven and a half thousand listens a month. That's all my mum. No, I uh, don't know. If... Seven and a half thousand. That's you know, yeah. that's impressive, isn't it? Yeah. My God, the most Jakarta's your most popular place. Yeah, Indonesia. Goodness knows why. Blimey, you would be like a king there, wouldn't you? Going from Jakarta to Glasgow, just like that. You're quite big in LA as well. Are we? There you go. Have a look at Spotify. You'll you'll see your fans. It's just growing. I I mean, it's great that this guy is doing his kind of... Because someone, you know, these these kind of John Peel sessions, because, you know, he probably will have about 200, 300 copies. So at least he'll be able to sell them all. So that's all good. So look, last question. If you could have said something then to your like 16, 18-year-old self who was starting out in this kind of rocky road that is pop, indie shoegazing you weren't shoegazers i know but what would you what would, was there anything you would have just whispered in their ear when they started were you embarking on sort of music in a, in a band yeah or, i just wondered if with the um, decades of experience you'd have thought god i wish that would have been a good thing to have learned or known before we started or gosh gosh ah uh, just no i would i would say don't do anything different but enjoy every second of it because once it goes it goes you know and uh as we've seen in the world now you know we took it for granted two years ago to you know jump on a bus go into town and see a band but without a mask on you know that's gone already so i would have said enjoy it take take loads more photos actually and uh, make loads of more notes because I, I don't know what, what we did and when and what year was that? Where did we play? And I've forgotten all this stuff. And it's such a shame. Yeah. I've got a couple of set lists with sort of lager spilt on them that I rescued. And uh, a few other bits and pieces. I've got a little box of sort of blue boy relics, if you like. Um, but I wish I'd kept more and took more photos. But of course, you know, quite busy driving the band to Liverpool, playing mm. a gig and coming home again. You know, but you... you I don't know, for some reason, you just didn't have a, ca- you, didn't, you wouldn't say, oh, must take my camera. You wouldn't think that. I know. And, and that, dear listener, is the end. Well, apart from a little bit more where we start waffling on and I say goodbye and it's all rather, I don't know, you don't need to hear that. But anyway, look, a massive thank you to the one and only Paul Stewart for giving me the time for that interview. And as I said and probably said during the beginning and also during that uh, little clip um yes their john peel session has been uh released on precious recordings of london check it out it's all there and also you can find their stuff on Bandcamp as well i do believe so anyway google away it's all going to be good and anyway if you want to contact me david eastall at the c86 show you can on facebook twitter Instagram, just do C86 show. It's all good. Keep it positive. Otherwise, just don't bother. And also, all these interviews have been archived, and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Just, yes, C86 show. And there you go. Anyway, look, I'm going to go to bed. Have a great week. Stay safe.